us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lundloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk... Why am I putting on a radio announcer voice? <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to the Lundloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life, or as they say, MML. Nobody says that, but I'm going to say it. I am recording this on Easter weekend, 2023, unless of course you are listening to this 50 or 60 years in the future, in which case... I'm dead and I don't care. Isn't it weird that I I technically could be communicating right now to my children or even my future grandchildren somewhere down the line? Kind of weird, isn't it? Uh, So look, I blew it. I'm a huge blow it. The Lund Loop, this is the, uh, let me check it out. This is the 45th episode of the Lund Loop podcast. But more importantly than that, we hit our, I always say we, there's no team here. I'm looking around right now. It's just me. I hit a milestone two weeks ago and didn't even notice it. And that was I started this podcast one year ago. That's correct. One year ago. Uh, One year ago, two weeks ago. Didn't do one every single week. I missed a couple weeks here and there, but uh, it's pretty cool. Been doing it for a year. And I thought since I've been doing it for a year, I'd give you a quick recap on some of the stats. These are actual stats based upon the Substack metrics here. The Lund Loop podcast has been downloaded in the last year 110 million times. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm reading that wrong. 11,000 times. Sorry. Too many zeros there. The Lund Loop podcast has been downloaded 11,000 times. Probably the same amount of times as the Joe Rogan podcast in eight seconds. But whatever. Not doing it to... uh, to get a $100 million contract from Spotify. But if Spotify wants to give me a $100 million contract, I'm not going to say no. I think what's really pretty cool is the Lundloop podcast has heard 79% of the listeners are in the United States, 5% are in Canada, 3% are in the United Kingdom, there's 1% in Spain, 1% in Australia, Singapore, Sweden, and one half of a percent in what's called the disputed zones. Don't know where that is, but... Anyway, so it's been one year since I started the podcast. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with the podcast when I started it. I had a couple failed podcasts that I tried in the previous years. Still not really sure what I want to do with the podcast. I will tell you, though, what it does do is it helps me. I've said this forever. Thinking is the programming for your brain. Speaking is kind of the debugging. Writing is really the debugging, but I think... Speaking is that middle ground between thinking and writing, so it helps that transition between ideas that I have and fleshing them out and then getting them onto paper or the digital screen. So anyway, one year anniversary for the Lund Loop. We are going to talk about decision risk, uh, both in markets and in life in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to talk about something that is very close to my my heart something that I love almost more than anything else, and that is sleep. I love sleep. And no, this is not a Tempur-Pedic ad. I'm just telling you, I love sleep. And I don't mean excessive sleep. 
like where your mom yells at you that you're sleeping your life away. But I love a good, solid seven to eight hours of sleep each night. I actually look forward to it. I think I even get excited about going to sleep. And this is probably because I've never, knock on wood, I'm, I'm actually knocking on wood so the sleep gods don't smite me down. I've never had trouble going to sleep. And for the most part, staying asleep. I think that's because somewhere deep down in my subconscious, there's an extremely rational part of my brain, probably an overly rational part of my brain, that understands that despite whatever troubles or problems or issues I've got going on in my life, there is nothing you can do about them between the time when your head hits the pillow and when you wake up. So why not enjoy it? So I've always loved sleep and I've been fascinated by the perception of sleep in our bodies and our brains. And what I mean by that is generally when most of us go to sleep and then wake back up, we've got a sense of how long we slept, how well we slept, and usually what time it is. But I I love those rare times when there is a disconnect between how long you think you slept and how long you actually did sleep. Um, I'll give you an example. So for me, I don't use an alarm to get up. I, I try very hard to go to bed at roughly the same time each night, and I've conditioned my body to wake up right about the same time. How I feel in the morning depends on a couple factors. There's always going to be a little bit of friction when getting out of bed, but I found out that if I can get up and get past those first five minutes, the urge to go back to sleep usually goes away. This is particularly true when I'm in what I would call a healthy mode. I'm doing the air quotes again. Healthy mode. That means I'm exercising regularly. I'm eating right. I've cut down or eliminated alcohol. When I'm in a healthy mode, it only takes about a minute before I feel that that energy that a good night's sleep provides start to kick in. Well, I'm in a healthy mode right now. I've been in a healthy mode for a few weeks. And I've been going to bed you know, like 9.30-ish. And that usually gets me up right about 5. I've got a morning routine that I do, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. And it's best if I can start it at 5. I don't always get up at 5, but I try pretty hard to get up at 5 o'clock. So this past Wednesday... Went to bed particularly early, went to bed about 9.15, fell asleep very fast, woke up, rolled over, looked at my clock, five o'clock. But man, I was so tired, like that type of tired that it's, it's in your bones. And I'm like, that's okay, it's just the normal morning friction. Let me just start getting up and moving around. So I got up, started moving around, started doing some stuff. Five minutes went by. And I did not feel any better. I mean, I felt like I could just collapse back into bed. And I was like, what's going on here? I don't understand. You know, I'm not drinking. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm exercising. I was kind of worried. Like, why am I feeling so tired? And before I started my morning routine, I, I grabbed my phone, which I don't normally do before I, I start my morning routine because I don't want to. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a second. Look at my phone. 3.30. It's 3.30 in the morning. Of course, my body is off. Because I'm up an hour and a half early and I figured out what happened. It was a windy night out here in Southern California. Oftentimes when we have big winds out here, we have um, power outages. So obviously the power went out at some point in the middle of the night. Don't have a battery backup in my clock. So when I looked over, said five o'clock, I thought it was time to get up. But my body was telling me something was wrong. And uh, 
my brain was not accepting it. So, and I've had situations like that happen throughout my life where you, you find some extra sleep time. It's like finding a $20 bill in your, your pocket or in your laundry. I remember once when I was younger, uh, high school, I got up, uh, thought I was supposed to go to school. I was like dragging and I don't know what happened. I came around the corner and I saw the, the clock on the uh, oven. and I was up like an hour and a half early. Same sort of deal. I think the power went out. The best example of that ever was something that happened to my son. I got him up to go to school. It was a Monday. And I'm usually pretty good about keeping track of when they're on and off school. But nowadays they have these really weird schedules where out of nowhere they'll have what they call a teacher planning day that will just pop up. And sometimes it's not in the schedule when you first get it at the beginning of the year, which is when I put in all of the uh, the holidays and days off. So got my son up, got him breakfast, you know, got in the car, drove to the school, came around the corner where there would normally be a car line and there was nobody there. And I looked at the school and there was nobody there. <laughs> and he's going, what's going on? And I said, you know what? I think maybe this is a planning day and I, I missed it. And at first he thought I was joking. And then I pulled up to the school, got out, walked up to the front door. And of course, there's a flyer in the door that says planning day. I came back. I said, yeah, buddy, there's no school today. Oh, my God. You would not believe how excited he was. Talk about found time. That was it was like one of the highlights of his uh, of his grade school years. So anyway, interesting uh, little sleep shift that happened to me this week. Uh, so I want to talk about decision risk. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot. I forgot to put the interstitial in. All right, here it is. Uh, is this the lunch loop? Ah, much better. Okay. Let's talk about decision risk. Generally speaking, there are two types of decision risk. Low or no risk and high risk. And one of the things we struggle with, both as investors and as human beings, is recognizing which is which. And because of that, we often spend a lot of time and energy and stress on low or no risk decisions, whereas high risk decisions we often make very quickly because we don't recognize the risk associated with them. And because we're not good at recognizing and evaluating the risk that goes along with any individual decision, we tend to frame them in binary terms the right decision or the wrong decision with no gray in between. So let me give you a couple examples of how failing to recognize the type of decision risk we're facing can impact us. This past weekend, I had lunch with one of my best friends and his daughter. Now she's currently struggling with a low or no risk decision that she honestly thinks is a high risk decision. And that decision is, which college to attend. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about deciding between Harvard and a community college. She's trying to choose between two fairly similar schools. The difference being that one is a smaller college in a small town, whereas the other one is a big college in a big town. And as I listened to her agonize about the choice, it really hit me and it really resonated with me. Because first off, she was framing the decision in right or wrong terms. But the other reason it resonated with me is because of something that happened to me when I was her age. Look, I'm pretty good at estimating decision risk in the markets. I wasn't always that way, 
but after getting my head handed to me a number of times, I finally figured it out. Where I have failed miserably is in my personal life because I have spent a good portion of my 55 years massively overestimating decision risk. When I was 17, I went to Australia for graduation. Graduated high school, left three days later with two of my buddies, went to Australia for six weeks. At the time, my aunt lived down there with my uncle, and they had invited us to come down, and we accepted. And when it was time to come back to the States, my aunt pulled me aside, and she said, look, why don't you stay here for a while? Why don't you stay here for a year or maybe two years? I think she picked up, correctly so, on the fact that I was lost. Like a lot of new high school graduates, I had no idea what I want to do with my life. And she figured that out. And she said, look, you can stay with us. You can go to university if you want, which is their version of college. Or you want to get a job, that's fine. Or you can just take some time off and hike around the country and find yourself. It was a great, great opportunity. But I thought there was too much risk associated with that. I put all this emphasis and all this weight on this decision. Should I stay or should I go back to the United States? I couldn't objectively evaluate the risk that was associated with that decision. And so I said, no, I went back, I flew back. And I remember being on that goddamn plane, looking at the ground as we took off, thinking to myself, did I blow it? But here's the thing. Whether I stayed in Australia or whether I came back like I did, whether my friend's daughter goes to this college or that college, neither one of those decisions are high-risk decisions. There's going to be so many things that happen after those two decisions are made that are way more important over the course of the next 5, 10, 20 years. But again, when you're 17 years old and you're looking at these decisions right in your face, it's hard to be level-headed about them, and it's hard to have perspective. All right, so let me flip it now. Let me talk about a stock market decision or series of decisions and how somebody evaluated them as low risk and they actually ended up high risk. In order to do this, I need to take you back to early 2008. And for context, the iPhone had just come out, and Netflix was a service that let you temporarily borrow music, sorry, temporarily borrow movies on a plastic disc delivered by human beings. Oh, and here's the barbaric part. You actually had to return them. In one of the more active chat rooms that I frequented at the time, I came across an interesting character. And this guy went by the name of Trader One. T-R-A-D-E-R, the numeral one. Despite having perhaps the most unoriginal screen name in history, he seemed like a nice guy. I assume he was a guy. Could have been a gal, but seemed like a guy. And he was always talking about the market, and he was always talking about trades he was making. And he had a very, very simple method. Buy every dip. B-T-F-D, buy the fucking dip. Yes, I said the F word. And he would just casually announce his his buys. You know, he would be like, I'm buying more XYZ on this dip, or this dip is a great place to pick up more ABC. He bought a lot of stocks on the dip. Stocks like BSE or CFC or LEH. 
You can't look these stocks up because these companies don't exist anymore. They went away. They imploded in the financial crisis. Trader One eventually disappeared from the chat room, as you might guess. And uh, not unlike that scene in Goodwill Hunting, I suspect that the only call out he makes now is, would you like fries with that? The reason Trader One didn't succeed was the casualness with which he embarked upon these decisions. Decisions he thought were low risk, but were actually high risk. And and the reason that he embarked upon these decisions is because he had a flawed methodology. His flawed methodology was based upon the previous success that he had. Because every time he bought on the dip previously, the market always came back. So he had an outcome bias and that validated his method. Now your eyes are probably rolling back in your head. Let me just dig a little bit more into what I mean by outcome bias. Let's say you and your buddies go to Vegas and you go out and you just get shithoused, okay? Maybe you drink one of those giant plastic Eiffel Tower margaritas or maybe you guys split a brazooka. It doesn't really matter what the delivery vehicle is, but you go out, you get lit and you take everything you own, your car, your house, your life savings, your autographed picture of Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse, everything, and you put it on red on the roulette wheel. Even if red hits, that was a terrible, terrible decision risk because even though you won, the method that you used, everything on red, was flawed. Eventually, that method is going to fail. In fact, it's going to probably fail little more than 50% of the time due to that little green zero on the roulette wheel. And when it does, the downside risk is so big that you'll be wiped out. The trader one fooled himself into thinking that his method worked, but even worse, he fooled himself into thinking that each of these little decisions were not connected. And maybe each individual decision by itself was lower risk, but when you put them all together, they constituted a massive high-risk decision. And this begs the question, what can we do to better recognize the different types of decision risk? And more importantly, how can we protect ourselves from outsized decision risk? Well, the first thing is just being aware of it, knowing what is a low-risk decision and what is a high-risk decision. For example, in the market, a low-risk decision is which broker to use or which charting platform you're going to use or whether to use the 21 or the 22-day moving average and whether to use the simple or the exponential. All of that stuff is low decision risk. Higher decision risk is putting too much money on one stock or deciding not to obey a stop on a position or averaging down on a continual loser. But more importantly, just like we saw with Trader One, recognizing that when you chain those individual decisions together, they exponentially increase your decision risk. And the way you can combat that, which we've talked about many times, is to have a solid methodology, a methodology that is concrete, that has parameters, that is focused first on what you can lose. It's got to be risk first and then reward second. So that's what you can do uh, when it comes to the stock market. When it comes to your regular life, well, that's a much more complex question. 
uh, would probably take three or 400 podcasts worth. And I don't have the expertise for that. But what I would suggest is there is a great book out there by Annie Duke called How to Decide. And she talks about a lot of the factors that go into our decision-making process, some of which are good and some of which are bad. She talks about things like resulting, right, or hindsight bias. She talks about the three Ps, preferences, payoffs, and probabilities. She talks about negative thinking. Uh, she talks about breaking free from analysis paralysis. So I would highly recommend that book uh, for, for better decision-making in your life. But one of the things that I like to do both in the market and in my own life is to do what I would say is a uh, postmortem when when I've had something go wrong or right, mostly when it goes wrong because you don't learn as much for things that go right. But I think when you have things that go wrong, if you kind of um, dissect what happened, kind of uh, reverse do a little reverse analysis on it. Sometimes you learn an interesting or, or a valuable lesson. And so I had something that happened this week uh, that I did that on. And, and I talked earlier about my morning routine. So my morning routine is I try to get up at five o'clock and I do so because I'm on the West Coast, right? The market starts or opens at 630. So if I get up at five, here's what it allows me to do. It allows me to do stretching, which I do first. Then I meditate. Then I do a five-minute write where I, I have this app called the World's Most Dangerous App. And basically, you start typing, and if you stop typing, it will erase all your stuff. So you have to type for five minutes, and it's basically like a, um, it's like, a, what is it, a stream of consciousness typing, right? And it's designed to just kind of get all the junk out of your head first thing in the morning. So I do those things. And then I go down and I, I make my kids breakfast uh, and I make them lunch for school. Then I wake them up. And depending on how efficient I am in this process, I might be at my desk at like 6, 6.10, right? And I do all my analysis the night before, so it doesn't matter. Sometimes I'm at my desk earlier. Sometimes I'm there at a quarter to 6. Well, this week I had a, a I think it was Tuesday. I did, uh, let's see, was it Tuesday? Let me Let me look here. I lied. I'm a dirty liar. It was actually on Wednesday. On Wednesday, I got done really quick. I got my process done really quick. I was back at my desk with 45 minutes to spare before the market opened. That's a lot of time. So what did I do? Well, I started popping around on Twitter. And then I looked at Drudge Report. And then I looked at, I don't know, some other thing. Bottom line is, I got caught up in all the goddamn toxicity that is social media, that is uh, online news. Bell rings. Uh, I get focused on Schwab, the stock Schwab. And I ended up in a six and a half hour fight with Schwab. Getting in, getting out, getting in, getting out, uh, getting chopped up. Didn't get hurt so bad in terms of money loss, but opportunity loss. I wasted all that time fighting with Schwab, which I don't normally do. And so that night I, I said, what, what was going on in my head? You know, I, I was, I, I was up on time. Uh, I'm in that healthy mode. I did everything I supposed to do in the morning. I stretched, I meditated, I did my, my, my five minute, right? What was it? And then I realized, Oh, I, I got sucked in to all that toxicity out there, all that crap that's out there. And I was in a bad mood. It put me in a angry, 
scared, agitated mood, and that came over into my trading. And I made bad decisions, and I was combative, and I took the price action personally, and I was kind of revenge trading. And I never would have realized that if I hadn't done the post-mortem. So I think what you do is it's a multi-step process. You take the mindfulness, you combine it with, in the case of the market, a methodology. In the case of your personal life, some of those things that uh, Annie Duke speaks about in her book. And then you add on to it that post-mortem, that post-analysis. Those three things combined, I think, go a long way towards helping you recognize the different levels of decision risk and, more importantly, avoiding taking outsized decision risk. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund loop, whatever you've got me on, um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.